You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. We are here with a mid-series analysis. How are you feeling, Stella? Good. I'm very glad that we're doing this. I think uh, this Pioneer series, which was your idea, Sasha, has been so interesting and so thought provoking. And so many thoughts go through my head every single time I, uh, we have an episode that I just think we could do with this. Yeah, I, I think that today, I mean, we, we've done a little bit of preparation, but really we are going to hash out some of our really organic responses and thoughts. There are going to be moments where we highlight things we really appreciate and agree with. We might point out things we don't agree with, with the pioneers, and we may not even agree with each other. But I really think this is going to be a free form conversation where we just kind of reflect back on the conversations we've had so far, middle of the series, um, and just kind of get our minds around everything that we have absorbed and discussed. Yeah, exactly. And the more we disagree... I think the better the the thought analysis of everybody is, me, you yeah. and the people listening. And I'm all for disagreement. I'm all for kind of hang on a second. Is that right? And let's look at that yeah. again. And I really think we, this is a good opportunity for everybody to kind of realize that just because we platform everybody doesn't mean that we're, we're nodding along agreeing. We want to hear the whole story yeah. so that we can all have more knowledge and from that platform you know, come to better places and come to more thoughtful places. Yeah. What stands out for me here is is that like, you know, you and I are both therapists and we look at the world through a therapist lens. And I think for me, you know, we've had all these conversations with research types. And when Stephen Levine came on, it was <laughs> yeah. like immediate buddies. Like I see the world the way We're he home. does. He sees, yeah, I just like wanted to kind of just wrap myself up in yeah. that conversation. But because we do look at the world from this particular lens, it also means we have blind spots and oh. there are areas where we're not quite as proficient. And so I really appreciate the Pioneer series precisely because we've platformed a lot of thinkers and voices and researchers who look at the world very, very differently. So that can inform our work as therapists. And we also bring something important to the table when talking about research, because we're like, well, wait a minute, what about this? What about this? What about this? So I I think this has been really fun. And I've really appreciated um, the fact that we've had, you know, um, respectful disagreements with a lot of the pioneers that we've had on so far. And sometimes we're nodding along right Mm. with them. And sometimes I didn't quite agree but I, I kind of wanted to hear exactly what they had to say. And I didn't want to come in with my ham-fisted disagreement while they were in the middle of a very thoughtful point. And I think that's really important that we've got to allow people, especially people who've done 40, 50 years of research, which these people have done, like, oh, yeah. my God, let's let's listen to them. 
So when when we look at it, will we go at it and see which way we go with this? Because uh, for me, it, it started with a bang with uh, Dr. Paul Vassi <laughs> and the Fafafine yeah. and his extraordinary research in Samoa. And what my my big takeaway from that, and I found that I loved that. I really found that so interesting was, well, if this population are being born in the Samoa, in small numbers, but consistently, where mm-hmm. are they in Dublin? Where are they in Phoenix? Where are they? Who are those people? Because he seems to think quite definitively that they're pretty much born like that. And by about three, the family spot them as little Fafafine. Yeah. If I'm right now, yeah. hopefully he won't be right to be saying, no, 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 still <laughs> all wrong, you flaky well, if therapist. if we have Paul back on, he can correct us and call you flaky to your face. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, well, where where are they? Who are they? Because they they don't, those little Boys, and I, I'll be honest, Jazz Jennings jumped to my mind, if you follow me. But those little girlish, do you follow me? Um, really but do you not know any any boys or males who are super feminine? I do, but I don't see them the way that he seems to see them in the villages, in the towns. I, maybe I'm wrong, but mm. they don't, I don't see them in the little, in the junior certain. Not, they're not celebrated. They don't have an ease to run around in in that femininity. Oh, I see what you're saying. There for isn't sure. there isn't a place yeah. in society. There is when they're coming out very strong and very camp way later on. Yeah, it, maybe camp isn't the right word. You know what I mean? In I whatever what way. Mean. But mm-hmm. I don't see a place for them in society. I suppose where yeah. I am. I think. Uh, well, what's coming to my mind is there's this kid in the U.S. called Desmond the Drag oh, Kid. Have you heard of him? Okay, so like I think in a different generation, that kid would not have been celebrated. And obviously, you know, to talk about the therapist's obsession with nature versus nurture, there's there's an environmental component of the parents encouraging him to do drag and perform, like the performative aspect of it is different. But I would suspect that no matter when Desmond was born or where Desmond was born, he would have been... Um, a young child with some cross-sex behavioral preferences and mannerisms and things like that. And so I think what I took away from the Paul Vassi conversation is that the environmental and cultural context helps create the way those natural behaviors are interpreted and given a voice or not given a voice. And you're right. I mean, I think a kid like Desmond, the drag kid, in a different time and place would have been severely bullied and really ostracized and perhaps would have had a father trying to man him up and and kind of in a a very kind of authoritarian way get the femininity out of this kid. So you're absolutely right. I think there's not been a really good place for such boys. And I think what's happening with someone like Desmond is that he's unfortunately been encouraged to participate in a a world and an environment which is not child appropriate. It's not that his femininity is inappropriate, but it's probably inappropriate to dress him in certain types of clothing and have him do sexual dances for dollar bills. That's inappropriate. And and further than that, there's other children, let's say in Ireland, that if they behave like that, they're presumed to be trans as as opposed to 
almost desperate the drag kid and yeah. I'm not I, I don't like the sexualized kind of adult yeah. nature of his life but it feels right. a little well it feels a good deal less intrusive than actual bring in the medication Pensive. yeah yeah and there you go it's the cultural context that really hit me over the head when I spoke with Paul Vassi we spoke with Paul Vassi it was like wow yeah. it's all about the culture second thing that kind of came to my mind was well in in their entirety the research really focused on the males and it was males doing research on males and then I think yeah. in their defense the women weren't there the numbers yeah. weren't there but by god the research wasn't being done on the women that were yeah. there and yeah. I, I I wonder again about the cultural context because we've just said how much it impacts I certainly didn't hear about trans men when I was a kid I heard about trans women I didn't hear about trans men and yeah. I wonder about that. I wonder, is that because we, we just didn't want to trans or is it because uh, it was just so socially unacceptable? Do, mm. do you know what I mean? What Was mm-hmm. it a bit of both? Was the cultural context impacting that? And now that the women are massively in huge numbers, not, you know what I mean, comparatively speaking, is there some sort of, is that a reflection on something that now a lot of women feel that it's socially appropriate to transition? I'm sad to see this. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I do see it as fleeing womanhood. I do see it as, as a, a real, you know, indictment on, on, on being a woman. But Gosh, a, a lot of thoughts come to my mind. I mean, I think in one way, girls who present in a more masculine manner in general somehow become less visible in the public eye. I think generally speaking, you know, when you think about, um, let's yeah. say a woman who's a lesbian, who's kind of butch or masculine versus like a woman who's highly feminine and done up and wearing a ton of makeup and stuff. Like, who do you think will be more visible in society in general? Yeah. I think yeah. femininity draws a lot of attention. And that's part of the reason I think trans women really dominate all the kind of media accounts of gender identity because it's it's we're obsessed with femininity we're obsessed with beauty and big boobs and long hair i mean i think generally speaking it just gets more attention so it's not entirely shocking to me that women with masculine traits and features were not really that interesting in the literature I think like Blanchard said, they also were a little more homogeneous in terms of what are the kind of pathways towards their identity questions. That was interesting. This is Ray Blanchard. He pretty much said during the Ray Blanchard interview, he pretty much said, because I think I asked him about it and he said pretty much they were all butch, lesbian, masculine women. He he kind of said that's who they were. And that Mm -hmm. makes me think of a lot of things. And it reminds me of our interview with Carol way back in the day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where she Mm -hmm. just said that like the place, I thought she was so eloquent about it. Where is the place for butch lesbians in society? Where is the respect for butch lesbians? I'm not convinced they have a place. I'm not convinced. I think they're kind of, um, looked down on or disregarded or yeah. I, I don't I think we haven't just like we haven't come to terms with the with the 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 flirty boy running around in his fairy princess outfit mm-hmm. very well we haven't come to terms with we can do we can do tomboys societally but we don't seem to be able to handle it in in the in the 20s 30s 40s woman 
Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, completely. I, that's really. I think that's really, really sad. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, that that's a really that's a really tough thing to kind of wrap your mind around. Just like, wow, there's really no place for these individuals, and I think even tomboy is becoming. Uh, like almost this extinct species. Like I remember talking with Lisa Selen Davis a little bit about this. So yeah. um, it's Bring really back the hard. And yeah, we need and, and, we need a word, not fafafine, not tomboy, but we need a word for the for the boys. Do you understand? That's mm, not sissy. Mm-hmm. Well, now that's me getting back into labels, and I, I don't generally categorize towards labels, but they need a word so they have a place in society. You know what I mean? For just yeah, no, because. In, now yeah. trans has taken over. I mean, yeah. if there's a feminine boy, the first thing a psychologist, doctor, whatever will think about is like, maybe this kid is trans. So trans has become a label that engulfs all of the the actual spectrum of femininity and masculinity that exists in people. And just to go back to the kind of the question of masculine women and butch women, um, I just think it's so interesting that they're typically ignored. There's no place for them. And then the second they transition, they become like superheroes. Oh, yeah. You know, trans men are Elliot Page. way cool right yeah, now. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's just such a powerful social force that works on a very, I think, sometimes a very conscious level, but sometimes a totally subconscious level. Yeah. And so when we do have these massive numbers of women, females transitioning, we have to ask what does that mean? Why is that happening? And to kind of go back to the researchers, like, is this just like a biological inevitability? I don't think so. And I want to pick up on that point in a sec. But just before we do, I think where are the masculine women? As in, you know, not that many. I could be somebody who'd say that. Uh, but not many women say I'm a masculine woman, unless they're saying it as a joke and they're making a point that they're very pushy or something like that generally you don't say that well I think feminine men are really really attractive like it's a certain type Mm. of man and he's quite a feminine man and Mm -hmm. I think that can be gorgeous you don't hear the phrase oh she's a very mass yes you don't hear that oh she's a very masculine woman she's a very good looking woman you would never hear that yeah it's true I remember talking with Carol about that like where is the place for handsome women you know like wow she's so sharp look at look at her amazing features or wow she really carries herself in a an attractive way like you don't really hear that in an attractively masculine way that woman yeah I think within the lesbian community you do but you don't hear that in the broader public I mean in general the broader public is still um understandably just based on statistical you know likelihood most people are still attracted to masculine men and feminine women on that just before we move on to the point about the biological and the hereditary and stuff i really wish somebody and maybe there is somebody somewhere we haven't figured out who they were studied those women way back in 1979 and 1988 yeah you know i have something so there's there's a researcher called Catherine Highstand, and I always share her paper. She wrote this paper about butch identity development. And it's not like a, a formal kind of research with control groups or anything, but it's a narrative study of adult butch lesbians talking about their childhood distress around gender and like wishing to have been boys and feeling like they fit in with the boys and not liking femininity. And she published this paper I think it was like in 2005 or 2006. Yeah, 2005. 
So I'm I'm going to try to track down <laughs> Dr. Heistand. We're looking for you, Dr. We're Heistand. We're looking for you if you're out there. <laughs> I'd be so curious about yeah. what does she think about all this gender identity stuff? Um, Is she even still a woman? You know, like sometimes I do wonder so many so many women who are doing like research about lesbian identities have transitioned. Wow. So I don't know. I'm going to try to track this person down. I'd love down, to know because we down. know so much homosexual, transsexual, autogynophile. Yeah. Like here we are in 1985, 1989. We yes. can say this, that and the other. And women, it's just this deafening silence and then a huge surge. And we're at yeah. sea. We're at sea. But where were those women? What were they thinking? You know, yeah. was there any autoandrophilia? And because I've certainly heard a little bit about it. So I would like yeah. to know a little bit more about that. Um, to go on, um, yes. you said that the big, huge, massive deal is made around, is something innate, is it not? Is there yeah. a genetic component? Is, it, is there a heredity aspect to it? I personally think there's so much heredity, like there's so much, you, you know, I might have you know, a vulnerability towards alcoholism, lung cancer, schizophrenia, um, gender issues. And it's not all of them will be awoken. It'll be how the nature is nurtured. It'll be the cultural mm-hmm. context. It will be the, the, the kind of the experience that I don't see it as important as other people. But some people seem to think from what I gathered from the listeners and uh, different responses of our show, people seem to think if somebody, if a researcher, and it was really noticeable that many of the researchers just seem to suggest there's a there's some kind of hereditary component, there's some sort of biological component here, that that we're we're somehow I I don't know we've got a different view or something. It just doesn't because I just think there's so much biological for everything we do. Yeah. Where yeah. where are you thinking about all that? Because that, that felt really thorny and I felt that was kind of irrelevant to being thorny because who cares if there's a biological component in different aspects of our personality? Mm. We still have to deal with it. Okay. So um, I'm thinking about a couple of things. These are like big picture things. But I remember when I was um, reading, I think it was the book Crazy Like Us oh, by yeah. Ethan Waters Great. and some other, you know, articles and things around the topic of like social contagion and stuff. Um, one of the, the ideas that I ran across was that um, in, in Western medicine, we try to find biological causes for all kinds of things, thinking that that will destigmatize the thing. Right. Yes. So, for example, if you let's talk about alcoholism, let's say there's no biological basis for alcoholism and you're an alcoholic, we might be more prone to blame you for your choices. Right. Mm-hmm. But if we say, Stella, no, the reason that you're an alcoholic is because you were born with this predisposition. It's not your fault. Blah, born blah, this blah. way. Right. Right. So that's the kind of born this way argument, which. For better or worse, like whether you agree with that argument or not, it was really powerful in trying to destigmatize homosexuality and argue for gay rights and all kinds of things. So I think that we're really um, inclined, especially in the Western world, to look for these biological reasons for everything. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, I also remember studying that um, 
Some researchers found that this biological basis for mental health conditions doesn't actually create more acceptance for the individual. It, it makes them seem like there was a researcher who studied this. When there's a biological basis for someone's behavior, it makes them seem almost alien and foreign because you're like, oh, they're fundamentally so different from me. Wow. Whereas if a behavior is like anybody could end up adopting it under the wrong circumstances, it's a bit more humanizing. And, that's and fascinating. And also, I would argue from definitely from people I've worked with and my own feelings, easier to come back from if you feel that I wasn't born mm -hmm. this way, that I adopted this. It's not part of me. It came yeah. upon me. And so yeah. people find it easier to come back from. And otherwise, it's like once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I have the gene. <laughs> the mm -hmm. drink is in me. Mm -hmm. And you can get very fatalistic about it. And mm -hmm. um, you can start to almost abuse that position, if you follow me. You can brandish mm -hmm. it and use it. And um, I, I just think we have susceptibilities, but we have many of them. Many, many, yeah. many, many, many. So uh, it's how we nurture the nature. It's how we, how we deal with that susceptibilities, if you follow me. Yeah. And also, I guess, from the other side of it, because we've had a couple of comments about this, too. It's not necessarily just like, quote, negative susceptibilities. It's even our positive traits. You know, like somebody might be born with a predisposition for being, you know, incredibly warm and nurturing, but maybe due to a really unhealthy environment or kind of toxic relationships that gets kind of driven out of them. So it's not just um, quote unquote negative things that we can be born with predispositions towards. And of course, you know, I just want to say, I think I can speak for both of us that Having, you know, um, being gay, lesbian or gender nonconforming isn't a negative susceptibility. It's just something that we are born with the inclination towards. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a neutral thing. And I mean, that's what I appreciate well, about the researchers that they're like totally neutral. Clinical. Like, this is neutral. We're just looking at the numbers. And we have I no feel, judgments. <laughs> I feel some people found it very disorientating to yeah. be around clinical kind of pronouncements. That just yeah. said, I'm just looking at the research and, uh, you know, I've no judgment. I'm just I'm gathering the research and I'm delivering the research. And right. you can all argue about this, but this is the research. And there was an almost a, a, a religious zeal among clinicians, I feel, with the research, like the research speaks. <laughs> and that yeah. Is, yeah. Felt like God was coming down the from the voice of yeah. the Lord. <laughs> I really the don't research. feel like that. And I'm not as impressed with research because I'm a flaky therapist who lights candles. But it reminds me, it reminds me a little bit what we were talking about is, did you ever read the book by James Fallon, the neuroscientist called The Psychopath Inside? Where he no. was, it's very is it about you, Stella? No, it's about him. So he's a neuroscientist, okay. right? And he was, he was looking at brain imagery. And uh, he, he realized he was looking at brain imagery of his family to do with something like Alzheimer's or something and also of psychopaths. And it got mixed up and he realized anyway that his own brain was the brain of a psychopath. And like, like a true psychopath, published a book about it. <laughs> it's about 15 years old, but it's a good book. It's an interesting book. And his point was that he came from a very, very nurturing family. And his mother noticed a coldness and a, a kind of crazed competitiveness to him. And a mm. kind of a slightly mad clinical mm. coldness to him and yeah. she really showered him with love and when he told his family and friends that he was a psychopath they didn't look as shocked <laughs> as he thought they would 
I mean, this is like such a weird story. Can you imagine that conversation? Like, you think coming out as gay or trans is hard. Try coming out as a literal psychopath to your friends and family. And he kind of said, you know, there's probably way more of them. And you know, you've heard people say that about, you know, the, you know, sociopaths and surgeons and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. Can we nurture it into a, another place? And I, I yeah. kind of think we can. And I think just because you have a susceptibility to anything, it doesn't mean you are it. it right. And I feel sometimes with clinicians and researchers, they say, that's it. There you go. Nothing we can do about it. And from listening to the researchers in our series, I can see how personally, how the even the concept of puberty blockers arrived and got mm. some sort of understanding that people didn't just say, no, are you mad? Block puberty. Why on earth would you do it? Case closed. And really, should you be in this job? Wouldn't you think, <laughs> wouldn't you think that would have been the answer? When somebody Dutch said, why don't we block their puberty? But that's Give them the psychopath test at this exact moment. <laughs> no, but I, I yeah, yeah, I mean, joking aside, I, I see what you're saying. So... Flush that out for me, because I, okay. I hear I hear the, you going uh, somewhere. The way I heard the researchers was one a, a, an extraordinary belief in the science that I I don't quite have. If you follow me, that when the research when I say the science when the research says it, the that is the truth. If you follow me, if the research says there's a thirty percent X, well that means there is, and that's it. And case closed, and good luck. And I think research is much more fallible than that. Following on from that, I think you have to be a researcher to be such to have such a belief in in the research. And then following on from that, the general consensus between Paul Vassy and Mike Bailey and Ray Blanchard and stuff was that there was a very definite. uh, It seemed to be uh, some sort of component within these children from a young age for some of them, very small numbers. And I hope I'm not getting it wrong, but uh, some sort of feeling of. Some of them, it just came into their head and it stuck. It didn't go away. And what are we to do about the, these people? Because they're there. Now, I might have that wrong, but that was mm. my my kind of general feeling rather than my, my clinical kind of assessment of exactly what they said. But a, a feeling of there's an innate or there's a biological component that you're up against. And um, it seems to be strong in some people. And society needs to grapple with that. That that was how I got it. And then I could understand, OK, so some Dutch researchers said if it sticks and if there's a very small number for whom it sticks and there's nothing we can do and they're very unhappy. And then when they transition, their transition depends on how successful they can basically mimic the opposite sex, if you follow me. Maybe yeah. we should help them especially yeah. the boys with puberty blockers. And I always go back to that and I think, how the hell did they successfully give any girls puberty blockers? Because puberty blockers stop the boys developing the male voice. They stop the boys, the, the, the hair, the musculature and all that. You can trans as a girl at 25 or 15 or 35 or 45 and look successfully male. And you'll be taller and you'll be bigger yeah. and all of that there stuff. Is yeah, no, I completely There agree. is no valid reason. And I don't even believe there's a valid reason for boys at all, but for different reasons. For girls yeah. specifically, I think, how did it even get past go? There is no valid way other than you believe the lie about suicide. There is no actual 
about, you know, there's going to be more suicides in the teenage years, which there isn't. Um, it's no higher than, than other mental health conditions that are similarly distressing. But I think for the girls, it's particularly, there's no physical attributes. While for the boys, these researchers... Except the breasts, maybe. Breasts, yeah. hips. I mean... Yeah. I, but you can look I, very I, male. Yeah. You can look very male when you transition, even when you're a 35-year-old woman. If I transition, give me five years. I don't years. know, Stella. I don't know. Really? I, I think women who have big hips and really curvaceous bodies, they take testosterone and it doesn't fundamentally change. Oh, yeah. I mean, some fat distribution changes. But but I think you're hitting on something important. Which by and large, that, though. By and large. I'd yes. Say, yeah, yes. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. It is much harder for a male who's been through puberty to transition to female than it is for female who's been through puberty to transition to male. Yeah. But what you're hinting on in general is that actually the whole development of puberty blockers didn't start from the perspective of we're seeing these, quote, trans children grow up and become distressed. It actually started backwards, which is we're looking at the experiences of adults and what they wished would have happened. And had they been able to transition as kids, that would have been so great. And these are all hindsight perspectives, you know. Yeah. And of course, we, we did see that puberty was really distressing for kids who were struggling with gender. But given the astronomical desistance rates, the only possible explanation is that there are adults who said, I wished I had had my puberty blocked. I wished I had started when I was 15 or 16 on cross-sex hormones. And that's really, in my opinion, where that, that idea came from. And actually, we can ask the researchers directly when we speak with them in a couple of yeah. weeks, the Dutch yeah. researchers, because we're going to have them wait. on. It's going to be really fascinating. So um, I, I see what you're saying, Stella, because I think what you're implying is that some of the researchers we've talked to so far seem to really hold on to this idea that there's an innate um, thing that people are dealing with. And for those who have this innate trait, it might make sense to transition. I still think the issue here is that um, there are so many psychological factors that impact whether or not somebody's gender distress becomes totally overwhelming or whether they're functioning well or whether they're able to get through it in other ways. And just looking at the gender in and of itself doesn't answer a lot yeah. of questions, especially contemporary ones. And it's just making me think of our, I know we're going out of order here, but our most recent conversation with um, Rita Kertukaltiala, I like to say it properly if I can. Um, <laughs> Top marks for pronunciation. <laughs> I really love languages, so I do my best. I can't do an Irish accent for the life of me. I oh. try at home by myself all the time. Oh, I will teach can't you. Do it. I will teach oh, good. you. It slips into British really easily. <laughs> but, you know, even talking with her, it was really fascinating because um, she was talking about, like, the fact that autism has a really high incidence in, in gender dysphoric kids, and she couldn't understand why because she said, you know, well, uh -huh. if... If the boys were like she was talking really about masculinity and femininity, but the way I think is like literally this has nothing to do with gender in most of the contemporary cases. Yeah. These are kids swept up in a social contagion. And yeah. what we know, social contagions could be anything. Yeah. They could be laughing hysterically. They could, they could be, be afraid ticks. that their penis is shrinking up. It could be ticks. They could have 
uh, multiple personality disorder. Yeah. So it has nothing to do yeah. with femininity and masculinity in a vast majority of contemporary cases. These are girls who were like my little princess, you know, yeah. two years ago, and now they've thrown away their whole wardrobe. So yeah. I just feel like the researchers are so focused on femininity You're and masculinity. Right. And as the therapist, and Stephen Levine was the same way. Like this almost has nothing to do. Mm. And he's worked with more classic cases of gender dysphoria and AGP and so on and so forth. But for those of us like you and me who are working with this ROGD population, mm. I'm like, this isn't even about gender most of the time. No, this is about distress and disconnect and, you know what I mean? And being wrapped up, like you say, in, in a social uh, mediated craze, or, or that's certainly what it seems like. I, yeah. I, 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 I do think that um, when I when I spoke with Stephen Levine, or when we both spoke with him, it felt like it just it felt like it brought it all together because it was like now we, we've talked all about the clinical stuff and the the very, you know, the very cold, cold research that was pointing out to this and pointing out to that. And we were nodding along and very serious. And then Stephen Levine came in and talked about love. And we were like, oh, my God, yeah. now, now. And it felt to me like I was in the real territory. This was where I felt that now we're getting to human what it is to be a person the human condition and the depth of experience and the where the human mind can bring us to. And I, I feel, of course, I feel like this because I would, but I feel like the researchers could arguably miss this, the, the, you know, the human condition, the, you know, you know. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about something really interesting that Mike Bailey said. We were talking along these lines, and he said something like, I would be very cautious about assuming that partnership is actually the best outcome for some of these males. I noticed that. And I was like... He was quite definitive, oh, I thought. Yeah. He, he was kind of saying I would almost caution them not to marry. Yes, because yes, and yes. He, he, I thought Mike Bailey was actually very eloquent. He said, yeah. if he regretted anything, he didn't give enough time to the trans widows. He didn't yes. give enough time to the, the pain of the trans widows. He was focused on the... On the on the autogynophile experience and he, he kind of dismissed it. And I'm yeah. glad he said that because I think there needs to be a lot more attention to that. But at the same time, when he said they shouldn't, well, he didn't say they shouldn't marry, but he certainly paused and circled yeah. that concept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Stephen Levine, now I might be completely wrong, I I would say wouldn't have gone that direction, would be yeah. my feeling. What do you think? I think, well, again, this is an interpretation. Yeah, so we don't know. Her. I would think, like, at least from what I gather, Stephen Levine might say something like, there's some sort of reciprocal relationship between these kind of sexual obsessions of, like, AGP 
and an inability to have a successful relationship. So it's it's not exactly a chicken egg question that we have to solve, but it's maybe a reciprocal process. So if a person is having a hard time in relationship with their partner, what are the underlying problems that they're not addressing that might lead them to become sexually obsessed with something like autogynephilia? And and I'm wondering if someone like Mike Bailey, maybe a generous way to interpret what he's saying is, if there's a person who's got like AGP tendencies turned up to like a level 10 and they're so powerful, that person needs to really be thoughtful before they jump into a marriage thinking that's going to solve it. And on the other hand, I think if somebody has a potentiality towards AGP that's like at a number three, perhaps developing a really solid, healthy relationship that is fulfilling and allows them to grow as a person might even reduce those AGP tendencies. Like, this is a guess, there's no research, but that's my feeling about it. Well, that is, I think that would be our feeling because that's why we're in therapy because we think we can improve, let's say, the impact, the frequency, the intensity, the the hangover of any given condition. I see Mm. it very much as I would see lots of conditions. For example, if you say alcoholism, and if somebody is a really severe alcoholic, should they marry? It's like, probably not. You're very severe mm-hmm. in your alcoholism. Mm-hmm. You're just going mm-hmm. to cause pain. If mm-hmm. you're on the road, it's the million dollar question among alcoholics. Can you can you get off the train earlier or do yeah. you have to go on? And people really fight about this point and they really mm-hmm. argue about it. And it's the very same with maybe autogynephilia or maybe other things. Can you get off the train earlier Can you give a bit of attention to it and redirect yourself? And I think this is huge and this needs a huge amount of talk. It does not need to be silenced. It does not need to be kind of called out for some sort of, you know, destigmatizing behavior. And it's nothing to do with destigmatizing. It's everything to do with let's try and improve society by exploring what the hell is going on so that we can have a better world. But to go back to that, I kind of think as well as that, some people can be very, very abusive alcoholics. Some people can be very, very abusive autogynophiles. Mm. And it Mm -hmm. seemed to me that Ray Blanchard and Mike Bailey, who have really studied autogynophilia, Mm -hmm. both seem to come down on on the side of some of these men were incredibly abusive and narcissistic not all of them. And they yeah. seem to have met more autogynophiles than I anybody I know has ever met. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. said plenty of them keep it together. Don't inflict it on other people. And it's kind of like the alcoholic in the corner. Yes, he wrecks the family's life. He's sitting there. He's drinking whiskey. He's not connecting. He's disconnected. But he's not quite um, violent. He's not quite. It's a spectrum, if you follow me, of bad behavior and disconnection. And the, like the violent alcoholic is causing utter havoc. The the mm. quiet alcoholic who's a functioning alcoholic is disconnected and he's causing a lot of pain, but it's not the same degree, I would argue. And I, I would say that for every condition, the depressive, you know, the, the there's so many conditions mm. that can be so destructive or more destructive on the person than anybody else. Yeah. And I mean, even the even the comparison with alcoholism, like I have to say, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because... There's no way to spin alcoholism as a positive, but I could imagine a kind of scenario where somebody 
experiences some AGP tendencies and it doesn't have to ruin either their life or their, you know, they may not ruin anyone else's life. Like, I don't know if that's very practical. I don't know if that's common, but I feel as though that comparison, I don't know. It, it's a bit tricky for me. I know, but me and you maybe have a different cultural kind of thing as I come from the land of functioning alcoholics. <laughs> I, I do think I'm not being funny, but I do think I know so many functioning alcoholics. And uh, the, who use that term? Like, do people call themselves alcoholics? Uh, well, they do in the deep of the night when they're holding the whiskey glass going, you know, I tell you, Stella, I'm just a functioning alcoholic. <laughs> yes, mm. yes, it would mm. be used quite often. It's a very, very well used phrase. Um, but the point is that you you can live what looks like uh, uh, a successful life. But I would say there's a lot of pain in the family. There's a lot of disconnect. There's a lot of not turning up. There's a lot of distress behind the family of the functioning alcoholic. I think you could say that for all the conditions. Maybe if we moved it into another condition where you said it was a depressive or something like that, mm. that it can take over everybody's life or it cannot, depending on the person and how they manage it. One thing that I think, uh, just to move on, on because we can, me and you could talk about this for hours. Um, <laughs> uh, one thing that I, I thought was interesting was the researchers fully acknowledged that they weren't up on the social contagion part of any of this, that they didn't, as far as I could see, they, you know, they were kind of nodding to us saying, well, you can take the gauntlet on that. And I'm afraid there isn't enough research being done as we speak about the social contagious part of maybe autogynophilia, whether there is any, whether trans porn is impacting, I think it's impacting mm, on a massive mm-hmm. degree. Where's all the research about that? Who's doing the research about that? I hope somebody listening to us, you know, charges off and says, yes, that's a huge niche field that needs massive amount of attention, which I think it does. And also the kind of the... Um, these boys that have fallen into autogynophilia, can they come out of it? Yeah, yeah, and these yeah, ROGD yeah. boys who don't have autogynophilia, <coughs> and I think the feeling from the from the uh, pioneers researchers they're like, ah, oh, surely they have AGP, and I'm like, I I don't think some of them do. To be fair, to be fair, I remember Dr. Blanchard explicitly saying <laughs> to us before we we had him on. My research is old. I don't know anything he about did. ROGD. So he he was really. Um, honest about like and they my all wear they research all doesn't yeah. apply yeah i think mike bailey has um kind of pushed back on the possibility of true rogd boys i think you know i've talked with him before too outside of the podcast and he's like look i'm not saying it's totally impossible but my inclination is strongly that these rogd boys probably have autogynophilia i i really don't know i don't think so because i've talked to enough families of boys and kind of heard the the detailed trajectory of their sudden onset gender dysphoria and i'm like there's no way there's Mm. no way and also the desistance stories with like long-term success makes me think ah this is not agp that's recurring and the similarity to their sisters as such the similarity Mm -hmm. to the rogd girls like they're so similar that you mm-hmm. kind of think, ah, oh, now here, this is to do with the social condition. Of course, it just makes sense when you step back it from, from a yeah, second. Yeah, of course, yeah. without a doubt. But the porn thing, I I don't think that has been really mined at all. That's no. been lost. And it's, see, I was looking up the figures, like 150,000 members of this crazy sissy porn website, which was all about, I was like, these are all members of this site. Right. 
Right. Like the numbers right. are huge. I think we don't really have any handle on that. And I'd love to meet some researchers around that. And I don't even know who the researchers are around that. You know, that it makes me think, are researchers studying things like that? Because like, it almost feels like the nature of scientific wing- inquiry itself and the scientific method does not lend itself well to asking questions about like social influence. Yeah. It lends itself better to asking questions about what's innate, you know? <gasps> so uh, are, I mean, other than, other than Littman's ROGD, yeah. parent report study are there researchers who studied like the impact of environmental factors and sexuality and, i don't even and, know and how do you phrase the question to figure it out like it's 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 so much easier to find out any sort of innate susceptibilities rather than social contagious because how do you how do you figure how, yeah, how yeah, do you how formulate do you the, the research yeah. how do you structure the the whole thing it would be you would have to have like a a group of kids raised without sissy porn and a group of kids raised with sissy porn and see what happens, which is totally unethical and no one would do that. <laughs> Maybe the Dutch would. <laughs> Sorry, delete. We could, we could propose that when we have them on the show. Um, we have a research idea for you guys. <laughs> one, one thing I want to um, ask you what your thoughts were about was... Uh, I was kind of, I know I went on about it at the time, but when Mike Bailey was, you know, uh, attacked for his re- research and re- releasing that book and when Ken Zucker detailed, like other people's lives would have been ruined. The way yeah. Mike Bailey was attacked, the way Ken Zucker was attacked, that was early in the days. As I think Ken said, I'm, I was an early victim of that cancel mm. culture. But the the viciousness of the attacks. Now, Ray Blanchard was quite funny because his 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 attacker kind of shot too far and kind of said that there was hundreds of thousands of bodies lying dead because of Ray Blanchard. And so as a result, uh, that that, uh, you know, false attack didn't stick. But the awful, awful, horrible, horrible attacks that um, Mike Bailey in particular and Ken Zucker suffered makes me think how this field got really badly damaged. This whole field of what is going on with these children at the very time that it was exploding, Mm -hmm. I'd say people Mm -hmm. all over the world just went silent, went quiet, backed the hell away from gender because they saw people like Ken Zucker, who was the lead director of the clinic, lose his job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this really makes me think... um, I tell you what it makes me think of, if yeah, I can jump yeah, in. Please it makes do. me think of Stephen Levine talking about the chain of trust and how we presume that researchers know what they're talking about. We don't. And he said it so eloquently because we all bite our lips and think, I haven't read all the papers. And he said, it, mm. no, of course we haven't read all the papers. We have a chain of trust. We presume that the academics have done when it's from a decent university and as a peer-reviewed research, we presume we can trust it because that's how society operates. Just like we presume the car will go. We presume the yeah. money works because <coughs> right. there's a certain chain of trust that we're all living in, if you follow yes. me. And he mm-hmm. said it very well. And uh, then you, we had Cal- Rita Carti... Go on. Say the name Rita Carti... Rita Cartucaltiella. Then we had Rita Cartucaltiella. <laughs> I said it kind of Italian. I, I apologize. Now I'm going overboard. Go on. <laughs> but Rita Cartucaltiella said, you know, when, when they heard the research that uh, there was this kind of um, 
this new method, all the adolescent psychiatrists in the clinic said, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense to my knowledge of the human mind. That doesn't make sense (laughs) to identity formation. It doesn't make sense to everything I know. And yet they followed it. Why? Because of the chain of trust. And then I think of the attacks on the people who were trying to break the false research. People who are trying yeah. to say, hang on a second. People who are trying to say, there's other narratives, there's other science, there's other things to be said. They were being mm-hmm. attacked and everybody was just resting. God bless them. They were just resting on what they presumed they could trust the research. Like yeah. Rita Kerto Caltiallo. She was yes. presumed, and that yes. was really frightening because you questioned her on it. You said, well, what, what happened there in the clinic? And so did I. And she yeah. was like, well, we were finished and we kind of presumed we were missing something and they knew more than we did, but it didn't make at all sense. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's mm. also making me think about a very early conversation we had, like one of our first few episodes with Dr. Will Malone. <gasps> and we were talking yeah. about how like, you know, there are so many things that you have to figure out just based on what you're told. And of course, nobody is going back to read every single piece of research. um, And we trust the medical authorities. And I think this is exactly what's happening. And it's really interesting to hear, though, that when somebody who is a medical authority on a subject, like a Dr. Zucker, how the pressure of a few activists can derail all of the authority that he carried for decades. That's astonishing. And Dr. Zucker and Dr. Bailey, they were really well established in their field. What I want, who are the 25-year-olds, the 30-year-olds, the 35-year-olds who were not well established, who tried to do similar research and got the hell out of Dodge City, who got nowhere, got silenced, got told that they were homophobic, transphobic, bigots, whatever the hell they were, and uh, stopped the research and stopped. I'd say there's a wealth of unfinished research and studies of people who didn't get past certain points in in these awful years between 2000 and 2020, as far as I can see. And, you know, it took somebody of the of the (coughs) kind of the grit and resilience of Ken Zucker, who I would say has has got an inordinate level of of grit, if you follow me. Yeah. Michael Bailey and then Lisa Littman coming up. If you follow me. Mm-hmm. And really, we mm-hmm. should have had her as our pioneers, but we jumped too soon and we grabbed her sooner. <laughs> but we can have her again. But yeah, her bringing out the research, that took extraordinary perseverance. Yeah, and, that's and right. And when Rita Cartiello saw the research, she said, now that makes sense. But she yeah. had a chain of trust. She just guessed that she was missing something. Yeah. That was quite astonishing to, to think about and to hear her say and... Um, I was really interested in the way politics in Finland interacts with their policy and and their research kind of standards there because it's really different from here in the U.S. But yes, you're right. The chain of trust is really important. And I mean, I'm also just reflecting on the necessity of having these kinds of discussions. And I wonder if we can just kind of frame frame up what's coming because... We understand that these are incredibly difficult conversations to have. These are really sensitive topics that have ramifications for everybody involved, whether it's the parent of a child or somebody who's experienced childhood dysphoria themselves or someone who's gone through, 
you know, a, a challenging experience. Like all of these conversations are going to bring up really powerful emotions and they do have serious ramifications. And we believe, especially coming from the perspective of clinicians and therapists whose job is to listen with curiosity, try to understand all of the nuances of an issue, um, encounter perspectives that we may not agree with, but are still valuable to discuss. Like we just want to frame up what's coming because we're going to continue on with the pioneer series. And we just want to invite our listeners to try and adopt this kind of stance of like, Hmm, what is this person saying? I don't have to agree, but what is this person saying? And why is this important to think about? I'm so glad you raised this because I, I, I was, I'm I'm a bit astonished to hear people wanting to silence people who have researched for 20, 30 and 40 years. I I kind of don't care what they're coming up with. I want to hear what the research says. If you follow me, I, I you know mm-hmm. what I'm not interested in the messenger. I'm interested in the information if you follow me that their research has found. And if it's research that doesn't sit well with us. Well, we have to look at that and we have to kind of explore it. And the idea of silencing the actual person who's who's researching because we don't like the research. It's almost why I'm sitting here, because mm-hmm. I felt silenced when I first asked about these questions. Well, it is why I'm sitting here. And if I hadn't have been silenced, if I had done that film uh, Trans Kids in 2018 and if I'd been allowed to explore all those issues I would have done the film just like I did loads of other things and I I did other TV programs I did write other books and I explored it explored it very fully went on a bandwagon and you know ranted about it and you know said the points and moved on but this one I'm finding very hard to move on from because of the silencing of debate and it's been personally very devastating for me to see People who I had thought were kind of open to what is the real story? What is actually happening? What is what is the research saying? Is the research correct? What is that research Mm -hmm. saying? Is that correct? What are what is the anecdotal evidence? What are the worrying trends? What are the clients saying? Let's look at it all. And when we've Mm -hmm. looked at it all, we will all know that little bit more. And the children who have been caught up in this and by God, they've been caught up in it. They will have adults who have some knowledge about what's going on and n- nothing's off the table. <coughs> While if if all of these, uh, if, if kind of one quarter or one eighth of the research is silenced because, you know, a small group of people don't want to hear about this, well, then we can't, we, we can't give good clinical kind of work. We can't yeah. provide good yeah. knowledge yeah. because we've, we've literally sectioned off one section and said, no, no, we're not going to we're not going to talk about that because it upsets certain people. That's just insane. Yeah. And, you know, I I, I'm thinking about two specific things. Um, One, I'm thinking about when we had Carol Hooven on. Oh, yeah. And she was telling us about her kind of observation of this male uh, Oh yeah, being incredibly violent towards a, the female chimp. And yeah, attacking. What, what I'm thinking. Yeah, and I don't remember if she said this on our interview or in other interviews, but I remember her talking about the fact that she was a survivor of a sexual assault, and what she feels is that 
Um, it's so important for her to try and understand that experience so that we can make the world a better place, so that we can get to the root of the issue, so that we can prevent things from happening to women and victims. And she talked about this experience she had when she was in school where like a professor was talking about something regarding rape or sexual violence or something. And she was so emotional. She was so distraught about it. And the teacher just kept saying, what do you think of the research? What do you think of the research? And eventually what she was able to do is kind of get her own um, emotions to a place where she was calm enough to think through the actual data, the actual information. And she's talked about that in other interviews. And I think it's such a powerful and instructive example because I experience a kind of similar thing. Like when I am, sometimes parents send me podcasts or interviews by affirmative clinicians that I think are awful. And I try listening to them and my heart will oh, yeah. start pounding. Oh God. And I'll start getting yeah. like sweaty and I, I get, I'm like panicky and I can't Almost still, panicky. I'm panicky. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I completely understand that there are some some conversations and pieces of information that trigger a really deep visceral panic response in us. And I know for myself, if I want to, let's say, respond appropriately to a video a parent has sent me, I have to be able to gather myself and breathe through it and like still honor my feelings. Like I have every right to feel that frustration because I know all of this stuff about transition and detransition or whatever. But it's still really important that we're able to think through everything that we come across. And so I just want to say to the listeners, I really empathize with the fact that sometimes you turn on an interview and you hear someone say something and you're like, fuck this, I'm not listening to this shit. And you yeah. turn it off. I've been there. I've yeah. totally been there. Many times. But we are really trying to dig into all of the research around these super complicated and touchy and sensitive topics around sexuality, identity, sex, human behavior, and all of the messy things that make people so complex. I'm so glad. And what, what you said, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's, you know, it's funny, me and you have realized over the last year or so we're very different in personality. In so many ways, it would make you laugh. And then we, we meet in places yeah. like this where it's like, it's just so important for us. It would have been so easy for us to just kind of turn left, do less of the pioneers, close it up, move back into the kind yeah. of let's talk about ROGD. And of course, we have many more things to say about ROGD, ROGD and we will continue and we have no doubt much more to kind of um, mine about that. But when we kind of hit upon the pioneers, both of us felt that there was really serious information being kind of ignored that had been silenced for many years that had been kind of dismissed by um, um, activists that people's lives were getting ruined like you know people's you know children were getting attacked and things like this like really bad stuff was happening and it was so it felt very very important and it still feels very important that we give air to the research that was ignored. And it was so obvious so far with all the pioneers. They could talk for hours. It's like nobody has asked us about this. <laughs> and they, I, one and all, quite clearly, could have talked for hours about it. Yeah, and it was like yeah. they have 40, 50 years of research 
And they have a lot of thought about this. Mm-hmm. And to silence it, because we feel a little bit scared and we do feel scared and we do feel uneasy and we do feel, um, you know, some people don't want us to continue speaking about this. They want us to talk about other subjects that feel better and feel more palatable to their ears. And I would say, turn us off. You don't have to listen. There's lots and lots and lots of other you know, podcasts about loads of other stuff. What we're trying to do is genuinely build a collection of knowledge where somebody can say, I really have, or we, you and I, Sasha, have really explored everything we could in good faith about gender, whether it's a person's experience or whether it's researchers' research. I think it's really important that we give it air, we give it time and hopefully not kind of make bad faith judgments about us and instead think, you know, for the good of society, this information needs to be need to be out here. For me, I need to turn it off. That's fine. That mm-hmm. We can live like that. I think that's okay. Yeah. And just to add on to it, I mean, that's part of the reason we did this mid-series analysis, because as you can probably tell from our conversation today, we're not just swallowing everything God, every no. guest says and saying, you know, we endorse every single thought here. The whole point of this is conversation. Yeah. We're really taking, I mean, I, I can speak for myself and I think this is true for you. We're taking the approach of therapists, which is let's hear everything. Let's hear everything that seems important here. Let's hear everything that matters and let's synthesize it. Let's analyze it. Let's be curious about it. Let's decide what works, what doesn't work, what applies here and what applies there. And that's precisely what we're trying to do. So with all this in mind, you know, we're going to plow forward with our Pioneer series and and we hope that uh, interested listeners will join us. Yeah, and we hope that people will realize that if it's not for you, let it pass you by. There's plenty of uh, podcasts that we think will be really, really interesting and they won't be for some years, but they will be for others. Our genuine good faith project here is to gather as much knowledge as we can from people who have researched it in a serious way. That's the Pioneer series. We will be back talking about other things to do with gender when we finish. But at the moment, I really do think it's a fascinating body of knowledge so far that we've kind of collected. Yeah. Shall we tell our listeners who's going to be coming up in the next several episodes? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the one and only Az Hakim is on the way and he has so much to talk. I think there's a lot there that he has around the kind of I'm hoping that when people listen to him, they'll be inspired to run the similar kind of um, the circles or groups that he had, the mm-hmm. group sessions he had, because he yep. did something pioneering that hasn't been replicated. Yeah, so that's tell very, you all about it. It's yeah. very interesting. And we also are going to be interviewing the Dutch researcher, researchers, of course. Um, so that will be a really exciting episode. I am episode. so yeah. excited about this. I'm so excited to hear what they were thinking, what was going on and how they felt when it kind of moved over to America. The Dutch protocol moved over yeah. and it just exploded. And so ran. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So we have a couple of other surprise guests too. So will we let oh, them yes. speak for themselves? I don't want to say anything lest yeah. we have tech issues. I'm always so scared of <laughs> tech issues. But yeah, we're really excited. And, yeah. and we have several more episodes of the Pioneer series on the way. And then we'll probably wrap up perhaps with another Paul Vazzi episode. Because he was so fascinating. Oh, it was great. Yeah. Well, and they all people were. loved it. Yes, yeah. he, they were all were, but that was a stage left. That came from nowhere and yeah. it went, you know what I mean? So that, that will be very interesting again, I think. 
And then we'll analyze some more before we move on to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.